This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by the Socialism 2019 Conference, which is taking place this July 4th through 7th in Chicago. Socialism 2019 is the largest socialist conference in North America. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, and socialists fighting for the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and organizing their workplaces and social movements. Participate in panels and discussions on black feminism, radical film, reparations, Palestinian liberation, and the socialist case for open borders. Speakers at Socialism 2019 include Naomi Klein, David Harvey, Astra Taylor, Amy Goodman, Anand Gopal, Francis Fox Piven, me, Dan Denver, and many more. Teacher strike leaders from the past year will come together at the conference with other teachers and union organizers to share experiences, inspire, and strategize. Socialism 2019 Conference is organized by Haymarket Books and Jacobin and is endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org. And make sure to register before May 31st for the early bird discount rate. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second and final installment in our series on slavery and capitalism, which was recorded live at The Dig's recent Slavery's Hinterlands Symposium. Last episode, we heard about indigenous enslavement from Linford Fisher, slavery in the North from Christy Clark Pujara and Joanne Mellish, and sexual labor under slavery from Emily Owens. Today, we're starting off with an interview with historian Seth Rockman on the big picture of how slavery and capitalism shaped the entirety of the United States as we have come to know it. Slavery in the American South was not an obstacle to capitalist development. Rather, it was at the core of American capitalism and empire. The national economy was firmly rooted in enslaved labor, from New England textiles and New York financiers to the development of capitalist management and accounting methods and westward expansion that dispossessed indigenous peoples to extend the Cotton Kingdom. Then, Crystal Eddins and Zachary Sell on revolution and counter-revolution across the racial capitalist global system. The American slave economy was not alone in the world. It was part of a colonial and capitalist order that stretched in time and space from an enslaved people's revolution in Haiti to, following the Civil War, an effort to remake white supremacist capitalist labor regimes along what W.E.B. Du Bois called the global color line. We discuss the broad outlines of this history and a few exemplary details and explore what it all means for Marxism. And finally, my interview with four public historians who teach about slavery's legacy today. Akia Bernard, Elon Cook-Lee, Joey Laneve de Francesco, and Marco McWilliams. 
Given that slavery's role has been so diminished and misunderstood in the conventional wisdom, how can a more complex and radical history be taught in schools, museums, and historical sites? Also, I know there is a lively debate over whether slavery was a capitalist mode of production and other related issues. This episode alludes to that debate somewhat, but it does not address it directly, in part because I'm just not intimately familiar with it. I do, however, plan on doing a future episode that explicitly addresses this argument, so stay tuned for that. Okay, before we get this show started, prove the economists wrong and stop free riding on this podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash the dig. We depend on all of you who can afford to contribute to do so, so that we can provide every episode for free to everyone who listens to us worldwide who can't afford to pay. Even five bucks a month is a huge help. And for those of you who donate more, we have left-wing book swag to send you in the mail. Also, I wanted to remind you that we put your donations to work, making this show better, including our brand new website at thedigradio.com. I'm really thrilled about it. It's got all of our shows searchable by topic and by guest, and transcripts are on the way. That's thedigradio.com, and it's wonderful. We need your support to keep this up and running and to make it all bigger and better. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Please hook it up. Okay, here's Seth Rockman, a professor of history at Brown, where he sits on the faculty advisory board of the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. He is the author of Scraping By, Wage Labor, Slavery, and Survival in Early Baltimore, and co-editor with Sven Beckert of Slavery's Capitalism, A New History of American Economic Development. Seth Rockman, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much. Let's start out with the the basics, which, and there are a lot of them, about how putting slavery at the center of capitalism forces us to rethink the rise of capitalism in so many different ways, in accounting, in finance, in technologies of labor discipline that well predate Frederick Taylor coming around uh, with his famous time motion studies, the development of modern capitalist management well before the rise of the railroads. Explain slavery's role in developing capitalism as a system and also all these core features of capitalism and what this all tells us about the origins of capitalism north and south. So let's imagine for a second, Dan, that you're a Martian. I've had that thought. Uh, And you're you're, you're actually a time-traveling Martian who uh, takes your your spaceship uh, over North America around 1835. And from the altitude as you hover over uh, the landscape, you, you're, you're trying to observe what's happening. And you look down and, and, and you say, wow, there sure are a lot of rich people over there. And, and, and you're looking at the, the lower Mississippi Valley. 
Uh, you might uh, say, I'm really curious, as a Martian, where are the most advanced sectors of technology in the society? Where are they using the most steam engines, which is this new thing that's come online? And you might say, oh, also really concentrated in the lower Mississippi Valley, whether in the steam ships along the docks of the Mississippi uh, or uh, in the sugar plantations uh, uh, throughout Louisiana. Uh, maybe you're wondering where are the places where people are most aggressively using credit to pursue economic opportunities. Guess where you're looking. We can go down this list, right, whether we're talking about the parts of North America that are most deeply embedded in global economic exchange, whether we're talking about the places with the largest units of production and using the most uh, advanced kinds of management uh, that we associate with modernity, bells, clocks, account books, if we're looking sort of for where agronomy and science are being deployed to achieve greater productivity for greater profit, if we're looking uh, for where the law is doing the most aggressive work to privilege property rights over natural rights, if we're looking for the places where commodification uh, is taken uh, to its, its, its full conclusion, you might stop to ponder the place where human beings are commodities, Right. So if you put all that stuff together as a Martian, right, with no preconceived notions, no investments in modes of production, just seeing what's happening, you're going to look and say, whatever's happening in those parts of the United States that are mobilizing enslaved people to produce cotton for the global market, there's something pretty remarkable happening there. And I think the attention that, that, that scholars recently have brought to this uh, has tried to be with these kind of new Martian eyes. Right, not bringing a, conceive, a preconceived notion of what's supposed to be there, but basically trying to say, let's make some observations about what's going on, and when we see what's going on, let's talk about what's going on. And to that extent, if all of the things that we're seeing actually tie to this thing that we think we know called capitalism, then it naturally forces us to reconceptualize what we mean by capitalism. So when one looks at this history with Martian eyes, it seems fairly obvious that slavery is at the center of capitalism's development, but that was long ignored by many scholars and just in the conventional wisdom of society, um, though not it should be emphasized by many black thinkers like Eric Williams, who argued just this in his 1944 book, Capitalism and Slavery. Why was slavery's central role in capitalism mystified from the, I suppose, the defeat of Reconstruction through the end of the Cold War, more or less? And then the related question, why is it that slavery's capitalism has in recent years been taken up anew? Yeah, no, these are, these are great questions. North wins the Civil War and gets to write its version of what happened matters a great deal. And it's very easy to tell a story of a righteous society defeating a, 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 a barbaric society. And that allowed... Uh, that's what I learned in school, that's if right. I recall. That's right. So that, that allows a narrative that, that, that makes this an ideological struggle between different social orders with one triumphing over the other. And that very much uh, moves us you know, through the 19th into the 20th century. Obviously, the exclusion of a robust black intellectual tradition from mainstream uh, discussions of American history, both within the academy and within the, the, the broader white-dominated culture, uh, kept many of the insights about slavery's centrality to American economic development you know, hidden from view, and, and I think purposely so from, from dominant society. The logic of the Cold War played a role in this. Uh, if you think about uh, the ways in which the United States, as an exemplar of a free society, had to create a history that would be viable uh, in the world to explain what's different about the United States from, from the Soviet Union and its, its satellite 
allies, then uh, that sort of begs a, a, a narrative that says that that freedom uh, is sort of at the founding of the United States, and it's a found it's a freedom predicated on uh, market competition and the capacity of individual actors to pursue self-interest with the least impediment possible. It was a freedom at the foundation of the United States that was merely incomplete because of the obstacle, the kind of aberration of Southern slavery. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, slavery is, 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 is an aberration. It had to end. Uh, and what matters is not that slavery uh, was, was present on the North American continent uh, for 250 years, but rather what mattered is that it ended. Uh, and it was easy to erase the former in order to, to really celebrate the latter. And I think there were other developments within the historiography through the 1960s and 1970s. I mean, I think some effort to work more anthropologically about what the slaveholders said they were doing meant that a lot of scholars took them seriously at their word when they said, we are not, in fact, you know, organizing a market-based society take it, that takes commodity logic to its, its ultimate extreme. We reject that. Uh, and, and I think that kind of credulity blinded people from, from, from uh, some of what's going on. But in terms of it, the recovery of these ideas, I mean, I think, again, there are institutional explanations and also explanations that are embedded in, 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 in present-day economic, social, and political life. I mean, so obviously the institutionalization of black studies departments and universities uh, in the 1960s and 1970s created new conversations between academic historians located in history departments and other scholars studying the past using different methodological assumptions and, and, and organized under a dis different disciplinary umbrella. And I think those kinds of conversations have continued to yield very productive uh, things, even as it has meant that that academic historians are largely playing catch up to ideas that are almost commonsensical within, Af within an Africana or black studies intellectual tradition. Uh, but I also think about the way the sort of present day has affected this and whether this has to do with, I think, uh, some simply some notion that, in fact, there aren't pure analytic categories such as capitalism that exist, uh, but rather there's always going to be a kind of hybridity, always a kind of uncertainty, always a, a set of ambiguities. And when we look at capitalism in the modern world and we think about, say, how prevalent human trafficking is in, in the 21st century, we don't use that to say, well, the 21st century still has to get itself to pure capitalism if it can only solve this thorny problem of human trafficking. We say human trafficking is, in fact, part of the system. When we look at the ways in which categories of difference are mobilized to create different opportunities for workers and create vulnerabilities that capital can exploit based on people who have citizenship or who don't or who have uh, who are criminalized by the police and those who are not uh, or who are male or female or whatever it might be, we don't say that these are contradictions that have to be worked out in the 21st century before we get to pure capitalism. We say capitalism leverages difference and state power and a whole series of other things in order to create profit. So I think that sensibility, taking that to the past, has allowed us not to be so concerned with whether this is or isn't capitalism, but rather to spend more of our time recognizing that what we call capitalism has an absolute capability to incorporate various forms of unfreedom, various forms of difference, to negate economic choice, and that that's, in fact, what makes the system work. I mean, put, put differently, these are, in fact, features rather than bugs. How did Northern distance from the immediate reality of slavery shape slavery, the politics of slavery in the North? You, you and Sven Beckert write, quote, 
several generations of industrial development and general prosperity blunted the thorny issue of whence cotton came. And so I have a a vulgarly Marxist question for you. Was this invisibility of the slave labor roots of Northern wealth, was it part and parcel of the way that labor's creation of wealth is always mystified under capitalism? Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I never want to generalize that much. I, I, I don't disagree with you for a second that uh, that, that capitalism has uh, an incredible capacity to mystify uh, and to obscure, uh, and, 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 and that's very much a, at the heart of its its endurance. But trying to figure out what's going on in the North in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, I, I, I find quite mysterious because you would think there'd be this amazingly robust conversation, particularly from labor radicals, particularly from abolitionists, saying that our entire prosperity is predicated on the fact that we are transforming slave-grown cotton uh, into, uh, into textiles, that our mill system, that our wage labor system is, 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 is inseparable from the exploitation of African-descended people on plantations a thousand miles away. And that conversation is so absent, I find it strange. So like if you look at the labor radicals who are organizing for exploited mill workers in New England in the 1820s and 1830s, right? They're using language of white slavery and wage slavery, but so much of their argument uh, is about that the wrong people are being economically exploited. This is people like Seth Luther. People like Seth Luther, right, making arguments uh, that that it's not that 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 slavery is wrong; it's that wage labor is slavery. And there are very few voices within the labor movement that are are creating this more sort of comprehensive uh, system or this comprehensive systematic understanding of the connection between the northern factory on the southern plantation. And you know, it, it pops up periodically. You, you, we, we, we know Charles Sumner's very famous alliance of the Lords of the Loom and the Lords of the Lash, and we can find it in a Lowell newspaper written by Mill Girls in the 1840s, uh, a, a piece of sort of throwaway poetry talking about northern cash and southern lash as, as two actors. But again, this kind of systematic analysis is, is largely missing. But it's also very much missing from the arguments of abolitionists themselves. And this is where perhaps it is more surprising. So when people who are the most famous white abolitionists are criticizing slavery and criticizing northern complicity with slavery, they will talk about credit relations that entangle northern firms in the buying and selling of people. They will talk about northern slave catchers. They will generally not talk about being up to their ears in slave-grown cotton. And that absence, that silence is quite, quite remarkable. Right. I mean, you might expect if you're an abolitionist and you're trying to raise public awareness about slavery as a moral evil, from our present day perspective, maybe you're uh, holding a picket outside the mill gates and reminding every worker who goes in that they are tied to a system of, of the exploitation of enslaved people. You might be protesting outside the homes of the factory owners about their connections to slavery. The abolitionists, the most hardcore abolitionists, aren't doing this. And I find that that very strange. Now, there are there is a subset of Quaker abolition that focuses on free produce, where people say we won't wear cotton that we can't prove has been sourced to free labor farms. Uh, we won't uh, sweeten anything with sugar that we can't prove uh, wasn't grown by wage-earning uh, laborers. 
but other abolitionists basically sort of say this is all moral posturing. I mean, William Lloyd Garrison in particular has has no use for this. Uh, he looks at these people uh, and basically says your your sort of performance of your own moral virtue doesn't bring any slave any closer to freedom. So how how there is no conversation, no really robust conversation in the North among black abolitionists or white abolitionists or labor leaders around why cotton is the basis of their economy and recognizing very clearly that cotton doesn't grow in Connecticut or you know, Massachusetts, uh, it grows in Mississippi. What that means for their society goes woefully uninterrogated. Are things any less mystified today when we look at the state of, of global capitalism, when we talk about Steve Jobs or whoever the new head of Apple is rather than the iPhone factory workers in Shenzhen, China, or we talk about gas prices without talking about imperialism and the impending climate crisis. Right. No, I, I think I think there are, are tremendous parallels here. But I also think if we want to figure, if we want to ask why there's a new conversation emerging among academic historians and others, I think it largely does have to do with the kind of new sensibility that in many cases I credit our students bringing uh, with them to the university, thinking about the relationship of remote consumers and producers. And as we have come over the last decade to think much more uh, about, you know, our fair trade coffee and our sweatshop-free sweatshirts and the degree to which the choices that we make in the West about our consumption of, uh, of gas or our participation in other segments of the economy and how those have reverberations half a world away, uh, right? When I choose to shop at this store, I am participating in the exploitation of a Bangladeshi woman. I think this sensibility is now much more prevalent than it has ever been, and it has sent us historians into the archive to try to look at these entanglements two centuries ago or three centuries ago, thinking about the ways in which very few people led lives that we would describe as local, uh, even in the smallest villages in southern Rhode Island or, or, or Massachusetts. These people led lives that were deeply embedded in global commodity chains, and the ability to see or not see has always been one of the, the sort of challenges of, of, of capitalism itself. Let's talk about some more things that slavery's capitalism forces us to reexamine. One is the history of the American state, American government. There was a longstanding idea that the early American state was weak. And this is, to this day, I think, a bedrock of, of a sort of libertarian nostalgia that all kinds of anti-government politics from the right are, are premised on. It also forces us to rethink this idea that Southern leaders were fiercely opposed to strong government or even opposed to capitalism itself. It also forces us if I read uh, you and Sven Becker correctly, to rethink what the real differences were between the Jeffersonian and Hamiltonian models for the country, which we see as like this basic choice that the country made at a certain point. Explain these, con these conventional frameworks about the organization of the American state and what a more robust and I guess honest analysis of, of slavery and capitalism reveals about them. So right, there has been historically this notion that the the uh, the national state was quite weak, right? What was the U.S. government? It was a uh, a glorified mail delivery system with a small apparatus for collecting some some taxes in the ports and not much else. But what scholars have have argued for the last several decades is, in fact, that that this state is most robust at the margins, and at the margins, it is doing incredibly important work. 
uh, to dispossess uh, Native peoples and expropriate their land, uh, to make that land available and distributed uh, to white Americans in order to expand the plantation regime. Uh, and so this is where sort of this Jeffersonian notion that we should be a nation of small yeoman farmers uh, producing moder moderately for the market, but basically uh, being left alone to pursue freedom on their own, bumps up into a more sort of Hamiltonian notion of uh, a strong state. And it's this Hamiltonian strong state that, in fact, funds a military to oversee uh, Native American dispossession. It's this Hamiltonian state that uh, seeks the kind of treaty privileges and treaty worthiness in uh, sort of a competitive arena of states such that the United States can exercise leverage over other nations in the Americas or can have access to ports, right? I mean, the capacity, for instance, to continue provisioning Caribbean slave plantations with foodstuffs from New England. After the American Revolution, the United States basically was told, you no longer have access to these crucially important markets uh, that have been indispensable to the development of, say, New England's economy, uh, trying to negotiate back into that the British Empire, as it were, in the 1790s. 90s is part of what the na national state does, uh, creating a national banking system uh, that, that pays down debt, in essence, to make the United States creditworthy so that it can attract the kind of capital investment that can finance the expansion of the cotton frontier, can finance the continued uh, the, the, the domestic slave trade and the second in, uh, middle passage that uh, you referred to in, in, in an interview yesterday. All of these things require a, a national government, a national bank, a strong uh, department of state, and of course a strong military, an army, and a navy. All of these things are online by the 1800s and 18-teens and crucial to the expansion of uh, a cotton regime into territories uh, that until quite recently had belonged to the Creek and the Cherokee nations, right? All that discussion of the Old South uh, is in fact truly a misnomer because the places that we call the Old South in fact are quite new. Uh, there's some amazing statistic, right, that something like um, by 1860, half of the enslaved people in the United States are working on lands that at the time of the revolution had belonged to other nations, whether Spain, whether, whether France, whether the Creeks, the Cherokees, the Choctaws, whoever it might be. And that process of, of massive expropriation of Indian land and a treaty power to buy land from the French in particular ultimately opens up the space that will put cotton at the center of the national economy. And it drives the opening of that space as well, right? The Creek and Choctaws were dispossessed in part because slave-grown cotton was more profitable and thus there, there was... Uh, more desire to to steal their land. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the process of of, of Indian removal in in Georgia uh, is mobilized by the fact that uh, in fact the Cherokee people have proven themselves quite adept at growing cotton on that land, and the degree to which then white settlers uh, seek to take over that opportunity ultimately yes pushes the the national government to catch up with the state of Georgia uh, in pushing people off of that land. And then to tie it all back together, then enslaved people are used to clear that land and then work that land to grow cotton. Absolutely. And there, I mean, there's so many other ways that, that one thinks through these, these, again, maybe entanglements is the word that, that, that we would use. Uh, there's a doctoral student at, uh, here at Brown University named Ann Daly, who is writing a dissertation on southern mining and gold mining in America's first gold rush in the 1820s and 1830s in North Carolina and in Georgia, and looking at the way in which those spaces 
become first sites of industrial slavery, as enslaved men and women are put to work actually extracting ore from the ground and, 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 and purifying it with mercury, such that that gold then flows to places like Philadelphia, to the U.S. Mint, where it's put into gold coins uh, that then go into the coffers of the Bank of the United States, which ultimately then allows for its monetary system to function because it's backstopped by slave-mined gold, which then allows for credit to flow into the United States to allow for more slaves to be purchased by more people to be put to work on more land to bring more cotton into the market, which then the United States exports primarily to Britain, and cotton then becomes the most important thing to bring more specie into the United States, since it truly is the only export commodity that the United States produces that has any kind of value overseas. Another question about the state. You write that the limestone south and the Midwest weren't so different in terms of being conducive to slave-powered plantation agriculture in terms of the the climate or the soil or sort of like, you know, quote-unquote natural reasons. And so the answer to the question of why Kentucky had slavery but Ohio didn't requires us to look to politics. Explain those politics and how we should think of the relationship between the politics and the economics of slavery. Let me clarify first that, that the, the, the particular argument that you refer to uh, is, is in one of the essays in Slavery is Capitalism. And you're writing an introduction to that uh, and so summarizing in, it. Yes. So yeah, my colleague, uh, John Majewski, who's an economic historian at UC Santa Barbara, studied a, a, a series of, of, of variables that might help us distinguish why Kentucky has slavery and Ohio doesn't, if in fact they may have very, very similar kind of terrain capacity to uh, sustain slave agriculture agriculture and so forth. And his argument is very much uh, that it is about political choice. It is about the ways in which legal regimes are established to determine what is and isn't permissible within the marketplace. Uh, And I think this is crucial for our understanding of why slavery takes hold in some parts of the United States and ultimately uh, is, is, is eliminated from other parts of the United States. It's not that there's any kind of natural relationship between a cotton production sector for an export market and the utilization of enslaved labor. I mean, we certainly know from after the Civil War that the United States is still capable of being a massive cotton exporter. Uh, without, in fact, the reliance upon legally enslaved people. Yet at the same time, right, this argument that what matters is, is, is basically the institutional regime, the, the, the relationship of, of informal sort of cultural mores and formal legal institutions ultimately determines where slavery will and will not flourish, I think is crucial then for thinking about, for instance, the Civil War. And it doesn't mean, in my opinion, right, it isn't the case that the Civil War is the inevitable outcome of a clash of civilizations, nor that it is the inevitable product of two incompatible modes of production, but rather uh, sort of, right, the institutional arrangements that flourish on one side of a line and and that are, are absent from another side of the line create space that politicians can then mobilize for political ends. And that largely helps explain why, for instance, after Abraham Lincoln was elected uh, in the presidential uh, election of 1860, uh, southern states chose to secede. 
right? I'm much more comfortable giving an explanation for the Civil War that says, why does the Civil War happen? Well, it happened because a group of Southern politicians decided to secede rather than to say it happened because slavery and capitalism are inevitably and inherently at odds with one another and the two cannot coexist within the same boundaries and so forth. And for example, do do you think that if the South hadn't moved through expansion of, of slave states across West and the Fugitive Slave Act to, to dominate the entire country, would would the North have been able to live with, with Southern slavery, not only live from it, but, but to continue profiting from it? I think absolutely. Uh, I, I, I think that there's a status quo that uh, might have seen some percentage of the Northern population uh, sort of uncomfortable with slavery, positioning itself in sort of making claims that there might be better ways of doing things, but also being very content with the idea that our our hands are tied under the Constitution. Uh, we lack the power to, in fact, uh, prohibit slavery from the places where it already exists, and that we'll continue to get the cotton from the South and we won't think too much of it. I mean, what happens, and, and, and you're right to allude to the Fugitive Slave Act and the expansion, uh, sort of the contestation over Western states, is that a significant portion of the white population in the North comes to see itself as the primary victims of slavery, uh, which seems utterly perverse, but this is sort of a white victimization argument that we see replicated uh, again and again it's familiar. Through, through history. Right. So who are the victims of slavery? Not the enslaved. The victims of slavery are white people in the North who uh, are seeing their, their, their speech rights uh, impeded by having the mail censored or who are seeing their economic prospects limited because some small percentage of them who might ever, in fact, consider moving to land in Nebraska or Kansas are now having to compete with slaveholders for that territory, or that they are victimized because uh, if an enslaved person does happen to run away to the north, then they will have to get their hands dirty under the Fugitive Slave Act uh, to help recapture that person. But a critique of slavery as not being optimal, not being ideal, does not translate in any way whatsoever to a a notion that slavery should be ended at once through immediate emancipation or that formerly enslaved people should be incorporated into the nation on an equal citizenship basis. And so I think it's always crucially important to draw this distinction between a North that has some set of anti-slavery commitments and I think this is quite real by the 1850s, by anti-slavery meaning it's not preferable, but not a North that is any way abolitionized. On the, at the time that Abraham Lincoln is elected in 1860, right, two of every five voters are voting for his opponent, Stephen Douglas. I think that's quite significant in an explicitly pro-slavery platform. And the 60% of the people who've rallied around the Republican Party in 1860 are rallying around uh, a claim that basically says the federal government can't touch slavery where it already exists. It can limit slavery from expanding to places that are still under territorial status. But by and large, uh, this is about all we're going to do about the issue of slavery. And moving black people out of the country via colonization was the, a mainstream anti-slavery opinion. That's right, right. Things that to us seem utterly incompatible, such as the compulsory exile of former slaves, are completely consistent within a dominant white northern anti-slavery uh, standpoint. It's this this free labor fantasy that white people can prosper without black labor, which is invisibilizing the very reality, returning to where we were, ta- what we were talking about before, of the North's dependence on black slave labor. Absolutely. 
Um, I want to I want to close by returning to something that we've alluded to a few times, which is the construction of white worker identity as a form of of white identity. And you write along with Beckert, quote, with labor radicals like Seth Luther decrying the exploitation of New England mill workers, the viability of the wage system depended upon its favorable comparison to slavery. After all, in a nation with actual slaves, workers who got to keep their wages, no matter how low, were relatively well off. In other words, black slavery in the South allowed bosses in the North to make free labor seem by comparison much freer than it actually was. And my question is another vulgarly Marxist one, which is, is it fair to say that what took place was not merely a narrowly economic relationship between Northern industry, finance and commerce, and Southern plantation slavery, but also a shared political economic order that divided workers and enslaved people against one another for the benefit of capitalists everywhere? You know, as, as we spend so much of our time uh, in our present political discourse talking about collusion, right, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to identify a coordinated effort, right, by which northern capital and southern slaveholders realize their mutual independence and, and, and hammer out some sort of coexistence that allows uh, them both to prosper at everyone else's expense. However, that is very much what happens, um, uh, and we can derive from that uh, what we will. But you're absolutely right to think about the kind of work that slavery does to legitimate wage labor capitalism in the United States. And this is where I think comparative analysis uh, to European nations that also are undergoing transitions to industrialization in the 19th century and which see massive uh, labor mobilization, massive uprisings uh, that, 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 that border on, on, on revolutions, right? And ultimately the rise of labor parties, and which we never rise, see in the United rise States. rise of labor parties as well, uh, all of which, right, call into question the self-evident logic that you can exchange uh, a quantum of your time uh, at work for a quantum of money. And this idea that the wage is the, the natural and self-evident way to organize work is not, in fact, self-evident at all to people who are on the front ends of, 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 of entering the factories in England, in France, in Germany, in the American North in the 1820s and 1830s. So uh, the legitimacy of this system has to be won either through violent compulsion strike-breaking uh, and whatnot, or perhaps it has to be won uh, ideologically. And I think in the United States, this is where we come to see the real value of slavery to the wage labor system. It absolutely provides a foil that allows all other work to somehow seem legitimate precisely because it is not slavery. This is a famous argument that scholars have thought through, through the work of someone like David Bryan Davis and other scholars in the 1970s and 1980s, really trying to think through these kinds of relationships and wondering in particular whether or not the abolitionists were particularly complicit in the rise of capitalism, that by focusing all of their attention on all of the horrors of the plantation, they diverted attention away from the horrors of the, the factory. And whether or not then abolition comes to be understood as the legitimating ideology of, 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 of the wage labor system 
and whether or not this is a kind of, 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 of brilliant sleight of hand, uh, scholars have many different uh, opinions on. But there's clearly something quite striking, right, when abolitionist leaders in the North say to striking workers carrying around their uh, we-will-not-be-wage-slave signs to be quiet, go back to work because you don't have a thing to complain about in a country that has slaves, that's an incredible power. It seems to have some ties to or maybe even set a template for other forms of scapegoating. Right. As the wage labor system becomes predominant and as it gains the intellectual sort of uh, validation through sort of capital F free, capital L labor ideology of the Republican Party in the wake of the Civil War, then right, the kinds of restrictions on Asian workers uh, that begin to appear in California in the 1870s have everything to do with some notion that they are in fact too slavish uh, to be able to pursue this free labor idea, even as that turns their victimization at the hands of, of an aggressive system of labor exploitation under contract and uh, uh, transportation, this turns their victimization under that system as uh, a reason for their exclusion from the body politic and ultimately uh, integration into American society. It absolutely depends on these kinds of sleights of hand. I want to end by the talking briefly about the Rhode Island's Door Rebellion, because it is really the most textbook example I've ever encountered of the tragic way that racial capitalism beyond the South divides black and white workers from one another for the benefit of the elite. And I'm just going to lay the groundwork a little about what ha- what happened with the Door Rebellion and then ask you to comment on it. This is, by the way, the coolest thing that most of your listeners have never, ever heard of. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's utterly bizarre. Um, in, in 1840, Rhode Island was one of the last states in the North to si- still severely limit voting rights to property owners. A People's Convention nominates a man named Thomas Dorr for governor on a platform to extend the franchise to whites, but despite Dorr's personal objections, continue to disenfranchise free black people as a whole. And then things get really, really weird. The electoral system breaks down. Dorr becomes the head of a shadow government. There are essentially two dueling governments in the state. The elites form a law and order party that calls out the state militia along with hundreds of black men from Providence to suppress the uprising, hundreds of black men who for good reason now oppose Dorr's rebellion because the Dorrites oppose the enfranchisement of black people. Ultimately, the Law and Order Party puts forward an electoral platform that maintained a property bar but allowed a small number of middle-class black people to be enfranchised. The upshot, you write, was, quote, the alliances formed in the heat of the Door War estranged logical anti-slavery constituencies from one another, allying free people of color with the wealthiest and least democratic elements of the state under the banner of the Whig Party, and at the same time fostering lasting hostility toward black people among the largely working class constituency of the Democratic Party. I guess my que- the way I'm going to turn this into a question is, is this like a a microcosm of of everything that has gone wrong in the history of the United States of America? (laughs) Might just be. It might just be. 
No, I mean, look, this this is this is always the 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 plight of of, of the historian who who looks back on the past and sees these opportunities where we wish things had been otherwise, where we look back and say, here is this moment where if 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 these people could have seen their affiliation with this other group of people, you could have challenged dominant modes of of thinking, of organizing power. Uh, of of and ultimately uh, challenging modes of exploitation that uh, continue to persist into the modern day. Now, obviously, as historians, right, we don't want we want to uh, uh, reach back in the past and grab people. Don't you see? Don't you see? Um, and we would, of course, like to have been there at the People's Convention uh, in 1840 or 1841, where Thomas Dore is basically getting up and giving a speech and saying, and we will create a constitution that will enfranchise all adult men. And then there's like crickets. And then, of course, the, 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 the people who put forward ultimately the people's convention, the, the people's constitution change it such that black men are legally disfranchised. And Dora's like, come on, guys, don't you see that this is logically inconsistent? Don't you see that, that we are, in fact, undermining our claims, uh, to doing something truly radical, uh, by virtue, by virtue of this kind of exclusion? And his constituents are like, yeah, we do see that. We're good. And lo and behold, the people's constitution goes forth with this, this radical kinds of disfranchisement, which then, yeah, as you described, creates a tremendous opportunity for uh, the existing structures of power, which are organized under the textbook name, the Law and Order Party, to mobilize a black militia company uh, to put down these labor radicals. And we want that solidarity to be there. We desperately want that solidarity to be there. Uh, and we can't find it. So because white whiteness and the wages thereof get in the way, they get in the way. And we also recognize that, that uh, African American uh, men are also strategic thinkers and looking to create space for themselves in an exclusionary white supremacist society, and are not acting out of some kind of false consciousness by taking up arms on behalf of the Law and Order Party. They're recognizing where there are, are cracks and figures with fissures within the dominant order that they can utilize in order to expand whatever kind of space uh, they may have in, in this society. And so it, it ends up, yes, I think as you described, being a textbook account uh, of the ways in which racial capitalism is mobilized, where white supremacy is mobilized to prevent the kind of alliances that ultimately could have done something about the fundamental inequalities of that society. Seth Rockman, thank you very much. Thank you. Seth Rockman is a professor of history at Brown, the author of Scraping By, Wage Labor, Slavery, and Survival in Early Baltimore, and co-editor with Sven Beckert of Slavery's Capitalism, a new history of American economic development. Next up, Crystal Eddins and Zachary Sell. Crystal Eddins is a professor of Africana Studies at UNC Charlotte and the 2018-19 Ruth J. Simmons Postdoctoral Fellow with the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice at Brown, where she has been developing her book, African Diaspora Collective Action, Rituals, Runaways, and the Haitian Revolution. Zachary Sell is an associate research producer for Firelight Films and visiting research fellow at the Center for Slavery and Justice. He is currently finishing his forthcoming book, 
capital through slavery, U.S. settler slavery, and the British imperial world. Crystal Eddins and Zach Sell, welcome to The Dig. Thanks. Hi, thanks for having me. How does this inextricably linked history of transnational slavery, capitalism, and empire, and of the resistance mounted by enslaved people and workers of all sorts, how does that all impact general theories of capitalism? For example, since enslaved people both work and are also capital, what does that mean for the Marxist conception of labor and capital? And also, what does that mean for Marx and Marxists' understanding of slavery? Thanks so much for that question. I mean, it's obviously an extremely uh, vast question that many people have different perspectives on. Uh, for, for a while, I've been working on an article um, called Capital After Racial Slavery, which has really tried to think about the way that Marx has represented slavery in capital. And not so much just to examine whether or not slavery is capitalist or is not capitalist, which has been often the way that scholars and Marxists have debated this question, but actually the way that Marx himself has de deploys ideas and motifs and metaphors of slavery to understand the exploitation of the wage laborer. And so in kind of deploying those motifs, there's often a sense in which rather than understanding slavery itself as part of capitalism, understanding the experience of enslaved people as constitutive of capitalism and capital, Marx really kind of deploys a metaphor, basically, that is to say that that wage laborers are enslaved by capital. So he'll use motifs of runaway slave advertisements, for example. He'll say, you know, just as runaway uh, slave advertisements describe the experience of enslaved people, advertisements that are uh, used in English factories des describe the experience of kind of like runaway laborers. There's another instance um, that's really uh, kind of amazing in its, its detail and documentation where Marx describes the entire operation of a slave ship, essentially, and the slave trade. Um, he describes the experience of enslaved people to a certain degree in the hold of a slave ship. And then he says, just as this experience is used to describe the experience of enslaved people, we can look at the experience of factory laborers as enslaved, look at the experience of bakers as, as enslaved. So he describes the movement of bakers from the countryside into London, working in bakeries, and says this is exactly the same as the experience of enslavement. Um, and in all those motifs, the huge and metaphors, basically, the huge problem that emerges is there's not an effort to understand slavery itself as the basis of capitalism. And I think that's a question that people have really, really raised and tried to think about. I mean, there's there's ways in which a person might look at other, other writings of his and see uh, a little bit of a different interpretation, but I think that's a huge kind of like problem and question. I think that when we look at the history of slavery, it really kind of turns Marx's conceptions of, of capitalism on their head to a certain extent. Um, when we think about the ways that uh, informally enslaved people really are doing the the work and the labor that is generating the products, uh, the commodities that are fueling the industrial revolution that's happening in places like England, for example, or, or northeast 
uh, North America. And so um, kind of taking into account that type of labor and the type of production that is happening, as well as the ways that enslaved people were alienated, not just from the value of that, of what they were producing, but from other aspects of their lives in really extreme and uh, inhumane ways, really highlights, I think, the ways that capitalism in and of itself uh, has operated in a much more predatory sense than what we've typically understood from a Marxist perspective. A related question to that is is how we should be thinking about the relationship between exploited labor, which is what a lot Marx focuses on a lot and a lot of Marxists focus on, meaning workers whose labor power is exploited by capitalists for surplus value and then expropriated labor meaning labor whose value under extreme conditions and push back on my definitions if I get something wrong, (laughs) under extreme conditions of domination is stolen outright from workers who are provided with at best the bare minimum for what is required for their own social reproduction, meaning the things that they need as, as, as humans, as people who to have the food and the clothing and the, and the shelter required so that they can get up, and work in the morning. How how does the research that you're doing that and that others who are looking at the history of racial capitalism and capitalism slavery, how does that impact how we think about this relationship between exploited and expropriated labor? Looking at colonial Haiti in the 18th century in particular, I think it's such a, a unique case that is kind of rife with uh, some of the most extreme, again, conditions of enslavement in the Americas. And so uh, not only are we talking about enslaved people's, their labor value being outright stolen from them, which I think is a a great way to put it, um, but we're also talking about being alienated from their homelands, being alienated from different types of means of social mobility. We're also seeing a a way in which human life is, is relegated to being really expendable. Right, uh, and black life being expendable in particular. And so, for example, uh, when we look generally at sugar production in the Caribbean and in Haiti in particular, you see that when, for example, sugar prices increased over the course of the 18th century, the quote-unquote uh, prices of enslaved people also increased, but at a slower pace. Right. So there's a, a figure that shows that the, that ratio between the, the sugar prices and the, the prices for enslaved people actually uh, figures out to where the actual values of black life are dec- on the decline during the, uh, during the 18th century. And that's not just a, an economic statistic. That's something that actually has very, had very real life implications for enslaved people in colonial Haiti, which was at the time one of the deadliest slave colonies in the Americas. So you have somewhere anywhere between 5 and 25% of enslaved people who are being brought to that colony um, dying within a very short period of time. So um, when we're talking about like this type of expendable labor workforce that are literally being worked to death in many ways, we see that there is somewhat of a, a correlation, I would say, between that and the ways that, again, capitalist production in that time period and then later continues to exploit Black life in, in these extreme ways. So the, the decrease in the, the value of enslaved people as, as commodities actually also led to the, the a deterior, significant deterioration in the their conditions of living as, as humans. 
Well, I don't know that it w- I would say that it directly led to it, but I definitely think there's an association there that they reflect one another. Right. Um, so when Du Bois is writing his sort of magnificent Black Reconstruction in the 1930s, he's also engaged in a really kind of systematic rereading of Capital. And in that reading of Capital, he's trying to account for what uh, both enslavement, African-American enslavement, and also Black emancipation meant, essentially. And there's a line... Uh, that I think is incredibly important in his kind of rethinking or thinking about that relationship, which is uh, that no matter how degraded the factory hand might be, he is not real estate. And so Du Bois puts this kind of ownership and uh, real estate and the kind of like commodification of enslaved people at the center of the violence of slavery itself. Um, And some people might think, well, is that different than just an account of property generally? And one of the things that's really interesting is if you look at Du Bois's papers, um, he very, when he gets back the first kind of like proofs essentially of Black Reconstruction, he sees that an editor has changed the word property to, um, or the word real estate to property throughout Black Reconstruction. And he writes back and says, this is, this was done in air. Uh, real estate really should be the term that's used. So he sees this as like foundational essentially. And I think it's important because slavery and the violence of slavery and the constitutive violence of slavery goes beyond the really brutal exploitation of labor, especially in the context of the United States, the slave trade itself and the interregional slave trade from the upper south to the lower south is of huge significance in the 19th century. Over a million people are moved uh, in a relatively short period of time from the upper south to the lower south. The second middle passage. Exactly. And so whereas in um, uh, the account of Haiti or Saint-Domingue that Crystal gave, just based upon sugar plantations with very high uh, mortality rates. That's not entirely the case in the United States, which makes investment in slave ownership as capital itself um, extremely significant and creates all sorts of transformations in the operation of slavery. Um, I think it's a good moment to kind of think of of a quote from Marx where he says, you know, capital comes uh, into the world dripping head to foot, covered in blood. And uh, Rosa Luxemburg sort of modifies that at one moment and says it advances in the world covered in blood at every step. And I think that this is one moment of that advancement, essentially. You just mentioned uh, Du Bois and Black Reconstruction and something that I thought we should pause to talk about before we get deeper into this history is how that history has been Written and in a sense, the the ideas that we're discussing only complicate the conventional understandings. If a number of hugely important black thinkers and scholars are excluded from the canon, Anna Julia Cooper, the author of the 1925 book Slavery and the French and Haitian Revolutionists, C.L.R. James, 1938 book The Black Jacobins, and of course Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. How have these classic works influenced the study of capitalism and slavery, where where do they part from Marx's analysis? And to what extent have they been historically marginalized in academia? Sure. Well, um, with regard to uh, Cooper's work and C.L.R. James, I think the ways that their scholarship has really kind of provided the the foundation for rethinking the role of, of 
black people in the making of modernity in general and in particular with regard to the the Haitian Revolution and the role of sugar production and and the role of black people of, of enslaved people in providing the wealth that contributes to the the French bourgeoisie right in the in the 19th century that in part helps to make the French Revolution successful. Uh, another significant contribution that these works make is not, is not only dealing with the issue of wealth and capitalism, but also dealing with the I- ideals of the Enlightenment right? and the, the limitations that are placed on the, the French Revolution in terms of the ideals of freedom and citizenship and looking at the ways that the Haitian Revolution in particular really kind of forces um, the French to not just abolish slavery, but to live up to those ideals in ways that they previously would not have uh, because of their commitment to racial slavery as a primary mode of of economic enterprise in the Caribbean. So the way that they are using these analyses by really centering enslaved people as the true source of transformational change within the the age of revolutions is something that has been at the forefront of a lot of scholarship that people have been doing within uh, Black studies especially or or within kind of more radical histories, though later generations of people like Herbert Apdecker, um, Cedric Robinson have been kind of really using these scholars to kind of rewrite histories in ways that are kind of reflective of the contributions of enslaved people to the uh, to the modern era. But unfortunately, I think in the mainstream academic fields, there's still a lot of silences around this scholarship. I think more recently, there's kind of been a, more of a renaissance around the, the study of the Haitian Revolution. Um, but this only comes after what you know, Haitian anthropologist Michel Rolf Trio calls this kind of long silence where for so long there's been these denials that not only have occurred within the social sciences, but within kind of uh, French historical memory itself. And so trying to break through those silences have been kind of the, the mission of recent generations of, of scholars. But but even still, you know, someone like Anna Julia Cooper, I don't think in, in comparison to CLR James really gets as much attention. And she's writing 13 years before he does. And I think a lot of people think about bringing in these these thinkers and studying these subjects as sort of almost a matter of representational equity. When I was speaking to, to Christy Clark-Pujara earlier and she was like, why Why is this referred to as radical history when this is actually just the honest history? Like, this is what actually happened. Yeah, absolutely. There's a really great uh, quote from C.L.R. James where he's uh, discussing, actually, Black Reconstruction. And he says, Black Reconstruction is a great book and something really must be done about it. I think that's still the case, you know, <laughs> where it's like, I mean, certainly people engage with uh, with especially the Black Jacobins and with Black Reconstruction quite a lot. But engagement and sometimes like the paradigmatic rethinking that these works um, kind of require is not exactly the same. Um, Crystal, I want to talk more about the the Haitian Revolution. You write that it was a a singular rebellion whose causes remain an enigma. And the standard interpretation for a long time was that the ideas from the French Revolution trickled down to enslaved people on the island. But you argue that the presumption should be precisely the opposite. 
For example, African-born enslaved people on the island possessed knowledge and experience from, from Africa. They did not come as blank slates to the island. They had both political ideologies and combat knowledge. Many were taken as uh, captives in, in war. And you found evidence for this in the history of grand marriage or long-term escapes from slavery, which you argue were a collective action precursor to revolt, uh, a dress rehearsal for the revolution of sorts, even if escapees did not think about it in precisely those terms at the time. Explain Grand Marinage and pre-revolutionary Haiti, how you think about these more everyday forms of resistance and how they fit in to world historical political events like the enslaved people's revolution that shook the whole world when it was triumphant in 1804. So when we're talking about uh, marinage in, in other languages, or in, in English, you can say uh, maroons, mar- marinage. In Spanish, there are references to to cimarrones, to palenques, and all of these terms kind of come from the, the Spanish root word cimarron, which... Uh, meant was in reference to a wild beast, right? So there's this kind of assumption in the etymology of the term that um, enslaved people were acting out in ways that were a- akin to a-, a wild animal and that their their state of being enslaved was supposed to be their, their natural place. It, within the European imagination, yeah. plant owners, plantation owners' imagination. So we see the formation of different maroon communities, runaway slave communities. I also like to call them self-liberated communities uh, throughout the Americas, uh, in north places like um, the swamps of Virginia, in Florida, Brazil, Cuba, Jamaica, Suriname. There are several major communities and settlements that come into formation that develop their own ways of, of being, their own ways of, of living and defending themselves that are separate from plantation communities and, and out of the purview of the plantation. So when we're talking about, when I look at in Haiti in particular, there are some very distinct you know social conditions in which the revolts in Haiti becomes successful and becomes the, the first and only slave rebellion that abolishes slavery and leads to Haitian independence. And so when I'm looking at uh, the Maroons that are living in colonial Haiti, there are some examples of these kind of wider, large-scale settlements, um, but we're also seeing examples of uh, runaways kind of going into urban areas and leasing themselves out as as workers to potentially either purchase their own freedom or to pass as free or to blend in with the existing population of free people of color. You also have enslaved people, formerly enslaved people who are uh, living on the outskirts of plantations. And you also have uh, those who are running to the mountains and kind of forming these maybe smaller scale communities. But there are still these kind of connections that happen, I think, between Maroons and plantation slaves that in my work really kind of tries to explicate those relationships and look at the ways that they contributed, those social networks contributed to the revolution's success. And so there's that connection in a more kind of concrete way in that regard in terms of the participants and maybe just the inspiration that we see of of enslaved people kind of knowing about Maroons and being aware that there is a 
way to live outside of the plantation economy that does not involve, you know, oppression and exploitation on a constant basis. And I think that's also a, an important part to um, to pay attention to in terms of not just the combat knowledge and political ideologies that enslaved Africans were bringing with them from the continent, but also just ways of life, the conceptions of freedom that, you know, again, kind of go beyond enlightenment ideals where, we see, again, Maroons kind of participating in ritual activity or sacred activities that are in line with their religions of the, their homeland. Um, we also see people kind of living and working on their own terms, so creating subsistence farming and, and tending to their own provisional grounds. And so there's a way that we can also think about um, freedom as this revolutionary thing that is based not just on on a military basis, but also just in creating ways of of living in safe spaces that are antithetical to the the plantation regime and are grounded within some of those African based understandings. And is it right that some of these spaces for the reproduction of of a life apart from plantation domination and also for resistance that those happened in sort of cracks created spaces created within the contradictions of the 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 plantation system like a slave owner might need to to have certain slaves who had jobs that required them to move around a lot but that also undermined the slave owner's power because then you had a slave an enslaved person moving moving around and creating contacts and differences. Right, absolutely. So that's uh, another um aspect that I look at is the ways that enslaved people who are forced to work within these skilled trades positions or working in um, domestic spaces, how that type of latitude, even as constrained as it may have been, still kind of afforded a certain type of latitude that um, allowed them to see different parts of the colony, for example, to maybe earn a little bit of money on the side to um, purchase their own goods, to trade, um, and to, again, kind of build these social networks that would later on become very important in the in the revolution. And so when you see, for example, someone like Toussaint Louverture or George BSO, some of these leaders who kind of emerged in the revolutionary period, several of them had already kind of had this a certain amount of, of privilege within the the hierarchy of the enslaved laborers division of labor. Speaking of resistance and rebellion, how does both of your research on slavery and the various other forms of labor that have emerged along what W.E. Du Bois called the global color line impact conventional understandings of, of who comprises under capitalism the working class and related to that, thus, who socialists conventionally understand to be the revolutionary subject, the most kind of vulgar uh, formulation of this, of course, is like the, a certain type of factory worker. That is the working class who will lead the the revolution. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I've thought like and written quite a bit about this. And one of the things that has really often like inspired me is doing kind of multi-sided archival research in places that might not seem connected to one another um, in any meaningful sense at first glance. So, um, you know, this includes Belize and Central America, uh, 
India, Australia, and the United States. And so, like, focusing on the period between the 1830s and the 1870s, you see really connections between U.S. slavery and the British Empire across these all of these places in ways that aren't characterized in any way by factory labor, but are characterized by connections through uh, plantations. And I think to make that kind of abstract set of um, places a little bit concrete. You can look at uh, really the 1860s, the period of the American Civil War, and kind of the unfolding of um, crisis in global capitalism and plantation transformation. So there's one narrative um, that has a lot of persuasive power and that I find quite compelling, which is that with the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War, there's kind of a global raw materials crisis. Uh, the United States obviously is producing the majority of cotton that's going to uh, factories in both uh, the northeastern United States and also to to Britain, especially uh, Manchester and beyond. But there's another way that you can also think about these relationships, which is really determined in some ways by the movements of people across places. So in relation to the outbreak of that crisis within capitalism, essentially downturn in factory production, there's a turn towards other forms of labor generally. There's a turn towards relocating workers from England to Australia, to Queensland, Australia. There's a turn towards uh, relocating first enslaved people from the United States and later actually Southern planters to British Honduras. And then there's also a turn at the same time to try, trying to kind of like reconstitute what work might mean, essentially, how plantation commodities will still be produced, uh, how there will still be access to exploited labor. And I think that when you start to trace those concrete connections, um, the way that work, the way that the exploitation of labor looks is quite different to draw a little bit on what a connection to India is. So um, in, the, in 1860, in the northwestern provinces, there's an outbreak of a tremendous famine. This is extremely important because the northwestern provinces are actually the largest, one of the largest out sites for the export of textiles from, from factories in Britain, from the factories of Lancashire. And so that too has a ripple effect on the way that the economy kind of like it's disrupted and unfolds. And so I think when we study the history of slavery, it's important to recognize it has a tremendous and constitutive impact on the economy. But at the same time, other sites across the British Empire are really impacting the way that the economy both like enters into crisis and also um, exits from crisis. And there's, there's this huge conflict that you're researching at the time between what form of labor in the wake of the US Civil War should prevail under capitalism, free white labor, an idea that's in Australia, and I had no clue about this, very much inspired by US free labor, Mm -hmm. ideology, um, black and slave labor is coming to a close, um, but or Indian and Chinese so-called coolie labor. Mm -hmm. But none of this was a debate over whether white supremacy should be an organizing principle of capitalism. That was a bedrock assumption. Mm -hmm. Explain a, a, a little bit, if, if the two of you could, to what extent political economic conditions, this is like a classic, this is getting right to the core of like a classic discussion here, of course, to what extent did political economic conditions create ra racism? And then to what extent did racism, even if it had been created for economic reasons, 
then later have an autonomous effect upon political economy. Yeah. So I think um, to take a concrete example, um, when you know crisis breaks out in the 1860s, essentially, there's a debate about what should happen with unemployed factory workers from Lancashire and Manchester. One person uh, named Henry Jordan, who becomes an immigration official for Queensland, Australia, says we should relocate unemployed white workers to Queensland, Australia to produce cotton. And this will mean that we'll no longer depend in any way upon the labor of people of color, enslaved labor, um, or so-called coolie or Asian indentured labor. This is a vision about the white supremacist ordering of a settler economy that's based upon the removal of any form of dependence upon enslaved labor or indentured labor. But then, of course, there's another valence that's about reconstructing the exploitation of free black or formerly enslaved black labor. And I think often within the economy, uh, we see these valences of of trying to structure basically a white supremacist economy that could take very different forms. Um, So whether or not racism is at the foundation of that or capitalism is at the foundation becomes a little bit of um, an irrelevant question in a certain way because it's always simultaneously both. I think that's a great point. I mean, in some ways, it's also a temporal question, you know, kind of depending on when we're looking at the questions of of what race is and how it becomes socially constructed. And if we even kind of go back to some of the origins of the transatlantic slave trade, much of the the language that European, Portuguese, and Spanish explorers and, and traders are using is very much kind of coded in religious terms. And so you're definitely seeing kind of proto-racial identities being filtered through that, that, that religious lens, even well before, in the 1400s, like well before plantation economies really um, take off and, and settler colonialism takes off in the, in the Americas. Um, but to go to the, the larger point of the ways that these dynamics kind of interplay with one another and in some ways uh, support and uphold one another, I, I would bring up an example of when after the Haitian Revolution becomes successful and Haiti declares itself independent in 1804, there are different ways of thinking about the way that the country is going to participate in the Atlantic world economy and how to kind of make sure that they're is a certain level of of economic production that is that is occurring in line with the the desires of the the military elite the leadership in both the north and southern Haiti but then you also have formerly enslaved people who are demonstrating that their preference is to again work in um self-styled fashions that are kind of based more on subsistence farming, things like that. And so by 1820, but all of this is kind of happening under the constant threat of re-enslavement and uh, recolonization by the French and by Napoleon's army. And so by 1820, this threat kind of becomes a little, a, a lot more uh, real and, and imminent when the French are essentially forcing Haiti to pay back the sunk costs, so to speak, or pay back the amount of money that they felt would have resulted from them still being a part of the, still having the, um, sorry, <laughs> the colony as a space and the the labor value from 
enslaved laborers. To comp- compensate them for the expropriation that emancipation constitutes. Absolutely. So to compensate them for those losses. And so in today's dollars, this indemnity reaches to what some people estimate as $22 billion uh, in today's money. And so when we're talking about um, the ways that race and racism constitutes or, or shapes the current and, and past political economy of, of Haiti, it's very much tied to this indemnity that has where the debt is still very much kind of in the system and refusals to kind of acknowledge that that is a source of of source of underdevelopment that is very much racialized has persisted until today. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Next Left, a new podcast from The Nation magazine. We are witnessing an explosion of progressive political energy. New candidates are running for public office high and low, and they're winning. Stay up to date and informed about these politicians who are striving to change our country for the better with Next Left, a new podcast created by The Nation magazine. Every Tuesday, Next Left host and national affairs correspondent John Nichols will interview these insurgent politicians and activists who aim to reshape our nation's politics by bringing bold, progressive policies to their cities, counties, states, and to D.C., Next Left will take us into the personal lives of a new wave of progressives to tell us their stories and their hopes to change our country for the better. The inaugural episodes of Next Left feature interviews with Representative Ilan Omar, and that episode is out now, and recently elected socialist Chicago alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez. Next Left, the political podcast that gets personal, launches this week. Download and subscribe to Next Left wherever you get your podcasts. Global capitalism and empire involved many different technologies for race and racism making. And my question, uh, unsurprisingly, is multifold. Um, How did capitalism and empire make and remake a global color line? How did that color line create, on the one hand, whiteness, including cross-national white solidarities, and also create a new black identity that, while being a prerequisite for racialized labor exploitation and expropriation, also carried within it the, the seeds of black radical solidarity and resistance, and also perhaps resistance amongst other racialized groups that found themselves on the wrong side of the color line? One way that I think I would answer this in looking at the, you know, really like the work that I've done and what emerges from that is that in so many different ways, U.S. slavery set the pace for how whiteness would be articulated and re-articulated, not just within the United States, but beyond as well. Um, It raised questions about how the economy should be racially ordered, how the economy should be based upon a plantation system, and who would do the work of that plantation system. And the answer that imperial uh, officials within the British Empire or factory owners often in the United States, 
planters, slaveholders came up with is it was going to be the bonded labor of enslaved people or, you know, otherwise a plantation system based upon indentured labor. At the same time, there's a second, I guess, movement, you could say, which is who is going to manage that labor and what is the management of that labor going to mean? And the answer that's kind of put forth across imperial uh, context or colonial context is management and whiteness go hand in hand. Ownership of land and settlerism and whiteness go hand in hand. Uh, property itself and the ability to control property is directly related to whiteness and being white. Being a colonial official is directly related to being white. And through this process, whiteness gains more and more meaning and more and more power. That's really great. So on the flip side, um, I'm interested in the ways that race was both, again, imposed by the transatlantic slave trade and by uh, enslavement in the Americas and, and in Haiti in particular, and also the ways that enslaved people um, throughout the Americas kind of understood themselves and began self-styled or self-autonomous processes of coming into a sense of racial identity. And the Haitian Revolution really stands as the kind of preeminent example of of what that could look like um, in a in a positive sense, right? So in the constitutions of Haiti, it really explicitly states that you know Haiti is going to be a country that is based where citizenship is going to be based on blackness. So again, we're dealing with a a, a country where the formerly enslaved population was the the vast majority of the human population. Um, just so just nu numerically, it makes sense. And then also you symbolically, you have this idea that citizenship, again, is connected to blackness and, and freedom is connected to, uh, to citizenship. And so there's so there's an untold number of ways, again, that that symbol of freedom and that symbol of um, pride in, in being black and, and that sense of um, independence really reverberates throughout the Caribbean and throughout North America and South America. Um, some examples might be where you see uh, runaways from other Caribbean islands attempting to reach Haiti's shores because they know that once they get there, they can be declared free. Right. Um, later in the 19th century, you have colonization efforts or at least uh, migration efforts from black communities in the United States to try to kind of make a life in Haiti and to see what it looks like to live in a, in a free black society. The Haitian Revolution has its tentacles in, in so many different places, um, events like the 1812 Aponte uh, conspiracy in Cuba, the denmark Bezi conspiracy in 1812, 1822 in Charleston, where his plot was to, his idea was to essentially take over the port, take over the ships, and sail to Haiti. So there are all kinds of examples where when we're talking about Black freedom, um, Black radical thought, Black politics, there are so many connections back to what the, the importance that Haiti represented um, of being free and Black and, and independent from a white rule. Haiti obviously had that massive global impact, but the, the reality in Haiti not so long after, including because of the, in, the coerced payment from 
from France and so many other reasons, it turned out to be rather bleak often and has been in Haiti to this day is one of the most brutally marginalized and expropriated and exploited countries in the world. But returning to the beginning of your answer to that question, if if a Stuart Hall says race is the modality in which class is lived, what does that look like in a black republic where the elite, at least the local visible elite, is black and the oppressed are also black? If under the system of racial capitalism, whiteness becomes synonymous with the master, the ruling class, and blackness or the other side of the color line more generally with the oppressed class, what, like, what does that look like in a black republic or what does that mean for people in the black republic? That's a challenging question. I think that that's a a question that many countries in the formerly colonized world have had to reckon with in terms of uh, the stratification that occurs in part as a result of of having to be independent, of trying to be independent, but what looking at what that actually means in terms of participating or not participating within the global economy. Ghanaian uh, politician Kwame Nkrumah, he talks a lot about uh, neocolonialism and its relationship to imperialism and the ways that we it's not it hasn't necessarily been uncommon for these types of kind of elite groups to be uh, co-opted into the formerly colonized uh, power structures that and hierarchies that still existed. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um Obviously, over the long uh, centuries history of capitalism and of racial capitalism, the way that it looks in a given moment can be radically different. But that doesn't actually mean that race and racism isn't still foundational and, and, you know, determinant in some ways, even if it looks different in the 1970s or today than it did look in the 1830s. Um, And in thinking about this, um, I often think of, Walter Rodney's perspective when he was sort of asked to grapple with the same, you know, the same question, essentially. And he has a a line that says basically, like, it's not that kind of like the old language that's used to discuss the operation of, of race and racism within colonial society didn't exist and doesn't matter, but it's no longer the same. It's no longer the relevant thing, he says. So basically, he's like, neocolonialism is still characterized by the operation of racial domination, but it's not the same. There can be, you know, a black elite and still a racist society. And I think that that's, you know, that's a question that continues to characterize, you know, in in very different ways. It's a problem to think about in the contemporary period, like how racism continues to operate in ways that's different from, uh, but related to earlier histories, essentially. Yeah, And and even when we look at when we look back at this question of the the global color line, there's still this level of uneven development that is occurring within these predominantly black countries in comparison to predominantly white countries that have been the beneficiaries historically of slave labor and colonialism. And so even as those micro-level hierarchies occur with internally to within the internal dynamics of these countries, there's still, again, these wide disparities that uh, become a lot more apparent and are very clearly racialized when you look at it on a global scale. Yeah. Oh, I would just add, I think that focusing on destroying the relationship between whiteness and capital first seems like the kind of fundamental question. And sometimes uh, 
other questions can seem secondary to that. The racism of the current order is only is only hard to see if somehow we're looking at countries like Haiti abstracted from the entire global system. And so I want to ask about about how the work that that you all are doing forces us to break down certain conventional ways of understanding the world that often studies countries either in isolation or in comparison to one another, and that instead studies various parts of the world in relation to each other. Is it fair to say that in certain corners of academia that this siloed, methodologically nationalist approach still predominates? And and if it does, why does it? And what is it that this approach obscures about how the world actually works? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, you know, again, a very difficult question to like, to really answer. But I think that, you know, one thing that occurs to me is the organization of scholarship in U.S. universities is often related to area studies. Um, And when you look at the history of area studies, it was, you know, actually often it was a U.S. government project in many ways to learn discrete information about many parts of the world to ultimately uh, exert control and influence over them. And that impression from the 20th century still remains and has an influence on the way people conduct their work. Uh, You know, we're not in isolation from that reality. But at the same time, I would say there's been really a great shift in the way that people are trying to think about and grapple with uh, questions of social domination and global perspective. And that's, you know, fundamentally important. I agree. I think that there's um, some important shifts that are taking place now um, in disciplines like sociology, for example, where many of the kind of critiques have begun to kind of look back at works by some of the what we consider to be the the classical scholars, for example, like Durkheim or or Marx, for example, like you were saying before, not just kind of reintroducing people like Du Bois or C.L.R. James to represent black voices in sociology, but to really interrogate the theoretical and the methodological uh, paradigms and approaches to to study. And so when we look at African diaspora studies, for example, there's an implicit transnational aspect to that that really kind of upends the way we think about how societies come into formation, how we think about um, culture, identity. And so even going back to kind of debates about whether or not enslaved people or formerly enslaved people were able to kind of maintain cultures uh, from the enslavement period or, or from African cultures and societies, or whether there was kind of a break in those kinds of formations and enslaved people just kind of formed new identities and new cultures. These are questions that have been largely, I think that there's there's been missed opportunities to really kind of engage in questions of who people of African descent are and how they have not just survived, but also created cultures, institutions, and structures that are largely insular, but also serve different social functions within American societies. And so um, hopefully, you know, my work, being a part of that discipline, being a part of sociology, is trying to kind of break open conversations about 
the roles of diaspora in, in social change, as well as trying to kind of understand revolutionary processes from, from different perspectives. Crystal Eddins and Zach Sell, thank you both very much. Thanks. Thank you. Crystal Eddins is a professor of Africana Studies at UNC Charlotte and a postdoctoral fellow with the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice, where she has been developing her book, African Diaspora Collective Action, Rituals, Runaways, and the Haitian Revolution. Zachary Sell is an associate research producer for Firelight Films and visiting research fellow at the Center for Slavery and Justice. He is currently finishing his forthcoming book, Capital Through Slavery, U.S. Settler Slavery in the British Imperial World. Our final interview is with public historians Akia Bernard, Elon Cook-Lee, Joey Laneve de Francesco, and Marco McWilliams. Akia Bernard is the curator of social history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum and has done extensive historical and archaeological research on the free African-American community in Newport, Rhode Island during slavery, and anthropological fieldwork in Rastafarian communities in the Caribbean and West Africa. Elon Cook-Lee is the program director and curator for the Center for Reconciliation, a consultant on interpreting slavery and race for historic sites around the country, and she teaches courses on race and public history at the Rhode Island School of Design. You can also find Elon dressed in 18th, 19th century clothing, re-educating the public about the past or dressed as Erica Killmonger while working to help museums restitute stolen objects. Joela Neve de Francesco is a public historian and musician based in Providence, Rhode Island. He has worked for years as a tour guide and has researched and created radical history programs at the Slater Mill Museum, John Brown House Museum, and elsewhere. He also performs with the political punk band Downtown Boys and the drag act La Neve. Marco McWilliams is a Black Studies scholar, educator, and activist. He is the founding instructor of a free community-based Black Studies program designed to provide theoretically grounded political instruction around issues of social justice. Akia Bernard, Elon Cook-Lee, Joey DeFrancesco, and Marco McWilliams, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank Hi. You. Okay. Let's get it. To start off, could each of you explain first what you see to be the core pieces of the conventional wisdom around slavery that you encounter, both among students and people in general? And second, the unconventional wisdom that you think has to be taught instead and how that can be taught. So for me, the conventional wisdom that I find most problematic when we talk about the history of slavery is that it is a historical circumstance. Akia Bernard. Um, and not a present circumstance. It's something that we've moved beyond. You know, we're still dealing with the legacy of it, but it's no longer a, an, an issue in particular for us. And I think um, I, I much more prefer the 
the approach that um, it's a system that still exists. It has changed. It has moved. It has relocated. And also, very important to me, it's a system that we are all very much complicit in. And I think that's a good starting point for talking about the legacy and the history of slavery. Joey Laneve de Francesco. Yeah, I guess for the work that I'm doing, the primary issue is that people think it's entirely a Southern sin, a Southern problem, something we've been addressing uh, throughout the symposium over the last few days, specifically working in a museum that's a textile mill. Um, Every time I do a tour, there's some number of people who are, you know, shocked both that there were enslaved people in Rhode Island and then shocked also that capital from the slave trade was going into the textile industry, that the textile industry was founded upon raw materials that were being uh, picked and processed uh, by enslaved people. And yeah, simply amongst Northerners is still a very popular conception, even amongst this like self-selecting group that would go to um, one of these tours that I'm putting on. Yeah, this is something we need to directly address by discussing in all of these historical sites, but it's only relatively recently many of these historical sites are even, even uh, touching upon this, let alone reaching the, the full capacity of uh, you know how deeply um, slavery was entangled with these northern institutions around early capitalism. So doing these stories where you know you just tell the facts, like where did this cotton come from that was making these cotton mills profitable in the North is a huge step towards uh, remedying that misunderstanding. Elon Cook-Lee. The major challenge that I face in our programs and tours is that the majority of people who come to our programs have a really fuzzy understanding about what the history of slavery and slave trading actually is. And so that's everything from the length and the breadth of this time period Um, what exactly it meant while it happened, what the legacy was, how many people were enslaved, how many Africans were brought here. I mean, I was not taught that slavery happened in the North. I thought it was only a Southern institution. And I find a lot of Northerners um, have also been taught that um, in various generations. So so for our programs, we spend a lot of time just kind of helping people go through those basics. What I think really needs to be impressed upon the public and especially in our nation's schools is the ways in which slavery still lives with us today. That legacy is generally separated from the history. I meet so many students, but also adults of various ages who just say, well, you know, slavery ended over 100 years ago. So who cares? The civil rights movement ended 50 years ago. So like it's over. Everyone's free and equal. It's fine. I don't know why black people are so angry right now. And so um, we spend a lot of time focusing on those basics and then helping people make the connections so they understand how slavery directly affected the way we live and work and are educated or where we get to be educated, who we get to marry and how we're treated by the healthcare system today. Marco McWilliams. What I uh, run into most is that people have a conventional understanding of slavery as primarily or simply a labor relation, just a social relation connected to white folks learning how to somehow be nicer to black people. 
And when people think of it that way, you can just pass some laws, liberate some people, and then everything's all good and we keep moving. But what I try to talk to people about, to students about, is slavery as a relation to white civil society, a social relation, an ideological relation. Sometimes that means that I have to pull stuff not only just from slavery, but just something that feels a little more modern, right? Like, did it all from, oh, everybody's familiar with Rosa Parks. Okay, cool. Let, let's start right there. Well, what part of the bus is she sitting on? She's sitting in the white section. No, she's not actually sitting in the white section. She's sitting in the middle section. Well, what does the middle section mean? Aha, let's talk about that. How do you board public conveyance in Montgomery in 1955? You get on the front door. If you're black, you pay your fare, and then you climb off and you walk around to the back door. Why? Because they wouldn't even allow you to walk past the white section. That's not about separate but equal. That's a different kind of concept. That's where we park and we sit and we spend some time in that garden talking about what does this mean? We pull all of these other kind of mechanisms out and say, all right, let's talk about the, a, a social relation in white civil society. Marco, when you're, if I have it right, you're developing a curriculum right now for a black history curriculum for public school students. I'd like you to explain a little bit what that curriculum looks like and why it is that you put black resistance at its center. So on a fundamental level, it looks like what folks are talking here about the panelists. First, we got to line up some dates, understand when, what is happening and why, and get, grab a little bit of context. Um, these are ninth graders. Okay, so we gotta pull out some, some fundamental stuff. Part of what that means is, you know, that we, we, we start with slavery, civil war, and then nobody knows what happens. All of a sudden we just show up at like Dr. King and Rosa Parks and we're in the civil rights movement. And so there's, they, they miss <laughs> a whole part of, from reconstruction literally right through to 1965. So the curriculum is, putting those components and pieces in because now we can actually talk about black labor. And so to talk about black labor means now to talk about black resistance, right? It's not just like black folks losing their jobs. How are they responding when they can't get in that, get in a white union? What does it mean to, I ran away and I escaped and I got free my own physical body is free, but I live in a constellation of a chattel slave system. Or at just that point, what exactly do we mean when we say slavery? Everywhere there's slavery, the Roman Empire, the Egyptians, no, 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 no. American slavery, chattel slavery. Chattel, what is chattel? That's private property, other than your land or your house that you live on. Well, what makes it... Uh, Chattel, because there's a lot of private property. Aha, good question. Is private property that has value? That means that you can buy it and sell it. You can take out an insurance policy on it. You can give it away in a will. That's how black people enter the American political community. That's a different kind of conversation. So I'm building a curriculum for high school students that allows them to develop some critical thinking tools. To Because they, if they can figure that out, then... All of the rest of this stuff will start to make a little more sense to them. 
I just want to add that um, a lot of the work that I do and a lot of the work that I know Marco does, because I've gone to a couple of his classes at DARE, um, is not just educating people for personal edification. It's, it's in order to move people to, towards some sort of action, um, especially the work with adults, um, recognizing that we're talking and teaching voters or prospective voters or prospective leaders in mm -hmm. our country. I've found that a lot of teaching around history can be really disempowering for students. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you had these great people who did awesome things, and then there's just me, just little old mm -hmm. me sitting there in the classroom as a kid going, wow, wasn't that spectacular? What, look what Martin Luther King did. Look what Frederick Douglass did. Mm -hmm. Do I have the strength and the courage to be Harriet Tubman and take off in the middle of the night with a giant rifle that's bigger than me? Mm. Can I do those things? That's mm. terrifying. All these larger-than-life yes. figures. Yeah. I can't do any of that. Mm -hmm. um, but when we, when we educate students and bring those big people down mm -hmm. to an everyday level showing flaws, showing the choices that they're making, yeah. then it, it gives the students the ability to see themselves in their stories. So that even before they can vote, even before they can become legislators, even before they can become major leaders in their community, they can see themselves as possibly being that person who makes a change, like teaching mm -hmm. them for the purpose of moving towards some sort of liberatory action. That's like right. That is the the core, I think, in a lot of our work here. A follow-up on that is, and for, for everyone, why is teaching black history important not only for black youth and black people, but for all youth and all people? Because, I mean, it, it does seem like understanding this country is, the truth about this country is a necessary prerequisite for people getting together to, to change it. I think, in, in particular, um, teaching the history of slavery um, as a small component of black history, because of course it, you know, it's not the story of black history. Um, I think there are, are a couple of opportunities there to teach about it, not as this dichotomous thing um, often, and I know it's the way I learned about slavery, not only that it was just a Northern thing, but- Southern. Sorry, Southern thing. Um, <laughs> Yes, there, there were those two pages in the textbook that had the smiling person picking cotton, right? Um, and if you're, you know, 40 and over, you remember that picture if you were educated in the North. But also the idea that it was this dichotomous thing. There are bad white people that are racist, and there are good white people that try to help black people. And that's pretty much all you learn about, about this history when it's so much more muddy and it's so much more complicated and it's so much more entangled than, than that simple dichotomy. And I think part of the, the lesson of black history in this country is you learn that not only was the humanity of black people, people who were enslaved, not only was their humanity degraded, but the people who were complicit in uh, the oppression, their humanity was also degraded. And I think using that as a fundamental sort of starting point, you know, that it, that it just eroded everyone's humanity who was involved is, it might not be the nicest <laughs> sort of point to, to come together, but it puts us on this common ground. 
Yeah, definitely when I'm giving tours, the ideal is that you get people to the point learning this history where they're like, wow, there was an origin of this institution. Wow, there are these you know, pieces that made this institution. And then seeing how that connects to the institutions we're currently living under, which then gives us some guide to how to dismantle those institutions. You know, if you can see where something comes from, maybe there's a time before that. Maybe there can be a time after Denaturalizes that. Denaturalizes it. Yeah. yeah. And so you have to, to actually dismantle the institutions in the present, you have to understand uh, the totality of those institutions, both in the present and the past. So if you're looking at today, you're not just looking at, you know, a like white uh, capitalist system in which only white people are interacting with each other, right? You're also looking at the legacies of white supremacy, white supremacy in the present and in the past, and of enslavement. And so when you're looking historically, if we're being serious about it and we're being serious about using history as a tool to you know, dismantle things in the present, you have to look at that totality, which means not just looking at you know, the mill owners and that they were you know, geniuses who came up with these uh, innovations that led to the Industrial Revolution, but it also means not just looking at the white working class, which labor history often tends to do. It means looking at how the white working class was interacting with formerly enslaved people in these textile towns, outside, you know, how the white working class was um, interacting or not um, with the idea of you know, enslaved people providing these raw materials to these factories. You, know, you have to look at all of these institutions at the same time if we're gonna be serious about taking things down in the present. Because I'm afraid, I'm afraid of the youth, the younger generation. My fear is that they will grow up and one day realize the things that we haven't told them, that we didn't teach them. And they're going to come and find me and they're going to ask me, you knew. You knew about this history. You knew about that archive. You didn't tell me. Why didn't you tell me? They're going to come. What am I going to do? Point at Elon and say, well, she was on him. <laughs> we can't lose another generation of black kids. This is America. We've given our bodies already. We filled the prisons. We've provided the labor, the raw material to build this country. You don't understand America if you don't understand black history. You don't understand America. You don't understand American economic system, the American religious structure. You don't understand the white psyche. This is American history. So I'm, a, I, I'm I, Teach with trepidation, because I, I want to tell them. I want them to know, and I want them to understand. It, it, so, to be frank. I just want to add, um, for one, I'm, I'm under 40, just barely, um, <laughs> and grew up in the mid-Atlantic. And I had that same textbook with the happy cotton picker. Mm. And, um, and it was a woman, right? It was. It was a woman. It okay. was. <laughs> it was. And she was like bent over and she was like, hey, picking that cotton. Uh -huh. and, um, and then there was like a little pop out of Frederick Douglass. And it was just like, yeah. And then that was, that was sort of black history and that's it. My frustration, the reason why my past history teachers should be scared of me is... Um, that I look, I look back with frustration and at times anger at what I was taught growing up in school. I was taught white history, white American history. So that's why I sometimes get a little frustrated with the idea of um, this, these questions around 
teaching black history because we're teaching American history. We have consistently been taught white history, but in order for us to properly teach American history, mm -hmm. we must teach all of our histories. Mm -hmm. And my particular focus has been on the African-American experience within the country of um, the colonies and then the United States. But we have to make sure that students recognize the ways in which there is no African-American history without white history, without Asian-American history, without indigenous history, without Latinx histories. They, they are so tightly interwoven together that you really cannot fully pull them apart in a lot of ways. Um, because my, my parents who grew up in the segregated South, their experience was shaped and boxed by white supremacy and the structures that would set up that only allowed them to live in certain neighborhoods, attend certain schools. My father attended a high school that had, I think, the third highest number of PhDs out of any high school in the country because those black PhDs weren't allowed to teach anywhere else. Mm -hmm. They couldn't teach at Brown during that time period. They weren't allowed. They had a quota. So um, we have to make sure that students today and that really everyone, regardless of age, recognizes the ways in which our nation has structured itself from day one, has been structured by choice from day one um, by certain individuals to create society the way it is right now. And that we living, indivi living individuals now have the choice to change these things. Elon, you, your work is dedicated to, to teaching and memorializing slavery as it existed here in Rhode Island and beyond at the Center for reconciliation. My question for you, and then everyone should jump in, is if you could explain reconciliation as a concept and a more provocative question, is reconciliation really, in a political sense, desirable? So, um, reconciliation. <laughs> fire next time? Yes. Um, so reconciliation, um, for me, as an individual who um, is an agnostic and works for a Episcopal, um, Episcopal church created organization that does both faith-based and secular programming. I'm, I have to be of sort of two minds on, on these questions, um, though one mind on the, uh, the last answer. So reconciliation in, um, within the church world is really trying to help people understand the ways in which the sin of racism um, in the work that we do, the sin of racism, the sin of slavery, has caused a break between individuals and, um, and God and has caused people to turn away from the teachings of Jesus. So you cannot fully reconcile until you have repented and atoned for what has been done in the past or what you've been involved in and then done some sort of work to help fix what happens. So in a more secular way, I, I explain it as reconciliation is, reconcil is um, recognizing that a damage occurred at some point, a break occurred at some point in history, um, between peoples, between nations, between individuals, and that this is a thing that must be fixed. And that an apology is excellent. An apology is a very first step. 
but it can't be the only step. There must be active work done, not just one time, but continually done over time to bring people together, bring people back together as reconcile or bring together people together for the first time as a conciliation that's bringing people together. So it's, it's recognizing the break and then creating processes toward actually fixing this thing so that it never happens again. Because I, I think some people, when they first hear the term reconciliation, might think about it in this kind of simplistic way, the same sort of simplistic way we think about Martin Luther King, who was obviously a radical, but who just gets reduced to, oh, I want black and white children to like be sitting under a tree together hanging out. Other thoughts on this concept and, and what it might mean? I think of reconciliation. I think of, and, and this might not be the greatest example, but it's the one that, that's always in the forefront of my mind, the South African example. Um, and it's debated whether that has worked or not. But when I think of reconciliation, I don't necessarily think that the point is for the problem to be solved. For, I think the point is to go through the process. Mm -hmm. So, And we are so used to, in our society, pointing fig fingers and saying, you did something wrong, you should be punished, as opposed to what happened, tell me why you did that, tell me why you felt that way about it, so that we can understand the underlying issue so that it never happens again. And so when I think reconciliation, I don't necessarily think about the end point, I think about that process of, of understanding. And I don't think we as a society think in that way, it's more about who did something wrong and, and how can they be punished or how can it be fixed, this very sort of speedy process, as opposed to, I mean, slavery went on for so long, oppression has gone on for so long, the process will probably have to be even longer. And so, you know, I just, I applaud that type of thinking about American history. And that's kind of the challenge of, in some ways, calling ourselves a, a center for reconciliation. Because almost within our title, it makes it seem like, just come hang out with us. We'll reconcile you. It'll be cool. Um, so that's, free, free hugs. Exactly. Free hugs. Free hugs from me as a black person to white people. feeling a little rough about the history of slavery. I will admit that in um, some of our early programs... We, we start off as, as some of our early programs of taking around a film called Traces of the Trade, which is about, um, it was created by descendants of the, the DeWolf family of Bristol, Rhode Island, who um, were some of the, they, this was the biggest slave trading dynasty, the biggest slave trading mm -hmm. family in American history. And, and they were responsible for importing, I don't know, I think it's about 100,000 people um, to the Americas, uh, Africans to the Americas on their ships. Um, so we would take these, this video around and then we would have conversations generally with predominantly white and in several cases all white audiences. And so there were many days where I was the only black body in the room. I would sometimes have uh, white members of the community come up to me after the program and give me a hug. And so I had to start making just sort of like gentle announcements about the fact that I don't actually need hugs. You know, like I love hugs. Hugs are awesome. But um, a lot of the folks who were coming up, they wanted that reconciliatory moment. Sometimes they would actually apologize to me. And I'd say, I don't, I don't need you to apologize for slavery. I don't need you to apologize for this long history 
Um, if you have things in your own personal life that you perhaps need to apologize for, <laughs> you know, I've never met you before, so I don't think you actually did it to me. Um, and so I want you to be thinking about the re reconciliatory processes that you need to do in your own life to address things that you have done or to address the privileges that you have received from your ancestors in this society. But the fact that there are still a lot of Americans that when we say, when I ask the question of what is reconciliation and they say it's black people and white people holding hands or giving hugs or, or like being nice to each other across the dinner table and sharing a meal. And it's like, actually it's, it's much deeper than that. It's making sure that there's actual justice in this country that our, that, <laughs> that um, you know, our, our future generations of children, regardless of their racial ancestry, or their varieties of racial ancestries that occur within their bodies can feel proud of who they are, can feel good about themselves, and not have to deal with a lot of the racial problems that we continue to have this day, today and will likely continue to have for at least several more generations. I think a big example of this is how race relations gets used as a euphemism for talking kind of an, uh, for talking about racism. It's like the way we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is like, oh, why don't these two sides, why do, why do these two sides, groups of people dislike each other instead of how do we undo a system of domination and oppression? Right. Would, would, would it be great if, if black folks could just hug white people <laughs> enough to get us to liberation, right? I forgive you. Give you. Give me a hug. We're gonna hug our way to freedom. A few times during this symposium, we've been talking about, we, we've mentioned the, the emphasis on Northern anti-slavery white people's rhetorical opposition to slavery and the, the focus on that in place of their material, deep material complicity in slavery as manufacturers in the North and whatnot. And I think a related question for right now is, is reconciliation possible without some form of reparation? And is reparation possible without a just huge transformation in our society, politics, and economics? I don't know. We're going to have to try that out. <laughs> because, the, as Elon just said, the, the project is justice. And any path to reconciliation, we, I'll hug you all day long. And then we got to talk about some land. We got to talk about some free education. So I don't, it can look like whatever we want it to look like. We got to have that discussion. Reparations, yes. Reparations. That we have to have a conversation about that, like a real robust one. But that's, that's the one that freaks people out. That freaks out the white ruling class. That, that freaks out like anybody, actually. Um, because now, it's, it's, you know, we, this, we're not throwing around metaphors now, right? This is like, okay, this is some exchange of something, some redistribution. You know, as my mentor, Dr. Claire Andrea Watkins says, the original dollar of capitalism started circulating right here, and it's still moving. Yeah, we got to figure out how to have that very, very complicated conversation, reparations. I think... People falsely hear that word and think money. Like a check mm -hmm. cut by the government. But the word actually means repair. You're repairing something. 
And I worked for a long time with an organization in the Virgin Islands that was pushing reparations with the country of Denmark. And the basic argument wasn't, you owe us money for enslaving our ancestors. The argument was, why are you a first world nation and we are living in the third world? Why don't we have even roads? Why do we still have cisterns collecting dirty water for our drinking? You owe us a system, an infrastructure, however that plays out, whatever that looks like. And so I think too often when we think reparations, we think everyone gets a plot of land, everyone gets a check, but really it's about healing the wounds of the system of oppression in whatever form, you know, collectively that takes. Which I think is an important point. People often, I think, when they get freaked out by the concept of reparations, assume it in its most individualistic form, which I think there are advocates of reparations in that form of, of certify whether you are an African descendant of slaves and you get a check. But there are also social ways to think about this as well. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a great example. And that's why I said this is a, a probably the most diverse conversation because it, like, it might literally come down to like, yo... You got to fix all these roles over here. You got to do whatever this project is. Like that can, and for me, that's the beauty of it. it. It doesn't have to be this one fixed thing. It's like, all right, we got a lot of history right here on the table. Let's figure out what this can look like in the 21st century. Because it can't look like it in 1750. The world is not even at that place anymore. We're here right now. So what does that look like right now? And we still got black people here. We ain't going nowhere. And I would, I would add to that because we, we have a lot of people um, come to our programs and, and will ask about reparations. And sometimes within our work, we, we call that the R word because it, it can be such a dreaded term to talk about. Um, and a lot of it is because there's just like you were saying that, that like Akia was saying, that this is, this is black people basically going into white America's pockets and taking every dollar they have. And so it's, it's, not, about, it's not about that at all. There are a variety of ways. There, there are financial reparations, and there's a history within the U.S., in, within our institutions, of doing, providing financial like reparations. Like at Japanese internment, for example. Japanese internment camps, um, as, as a primary example, but also the fact that there were slave owners after the end of, um, after the Civil War who were repaid for the loss of enslaved people. Um, there were also, uh, after the Civil War, there were black individuals who were provided with the land that they had been forced to labor on for generations and generations. And that that land was then taken back and under our first president after the Civil War, um, that land was given back to its original owners or sold to, in some cases, Northerners. So we have processes of giving back land, of giving money, of giving all kinds of things um, that has happened in the past. But there's also the fact that reparations in a lot of cases needs to be the restoration of memory that has been lost for um, people of color in this country, of rewriting our school books, of redoing some of our movies in some cases, of, of creating new films new opportunities for learning for everyone so that people can get a better understanding about our history. I, I would rather have our educational system improved and, and made to be more inclusive of everyone's history than just get a simple check in the mail. But also when you think about why I need a check, pay my student loans. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, I had to, I went to a historically black college considering why historically black colleges were created and why in the, during our most recent administration, there's been an actual uptick in the number of students going to historically black colleges. What makes us feel like we must go to these places um, that we will not be properly educated in other schools and other universities and not just educated, but protected emotionally, intellectually, physically in historically white institutions. There are a lot of students, a lot of parents who don't feel like they're gonna have that safety there for their children and for their students. So that's another element of that reparations. Um, Brown University established the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. They established the fellowship that I received, um, the master's fellowship uh, for the study of slavery and justice, and a memorial and, and all kinds of wonderful things. But Brown University students are not being continuously taught about Brown University's involvement in the international slave trade. They had that wonderful report that came out several years ago that originally was part of every incoming first-year student's required learning as part of you know, first-year seminar. That stopped at some point several years ago. That is reparations, ensuring that every student who comes to Brown, undergrad, grad, PhD, doesn't matter, learns about this university's history and its traditions and where all that came from. Georgetown, the Georgetown students coming together and saying, we will give some of our student activities funds to create a fund to ensure that the descendants of those sold to ensure that Georgetown continues to be, get to, um, get to come and, and be students here and take advantage of this amazing edu education. The students shouldn't have to do that. The university should do that. That is reparations. There are a lot of ways that we could be doing this. And through our educational institutions, to me, is a primary function, primary way. But the, the function of elite universities like Brown ultimately is to reproduce relations of inequality in the world. So I wonder how much a the, the, the study that was done was so powerful and so well done. And it did have positive results, obviously. But I wonder to what degree at the end of the day, it's sort of just recuperated by by an institution like Brown as an institution that has this kind of other nefarious political, economic, social role in the world and incorporated into its sort of uh, liberal slash neoliberal brand. Like, oh yeah, we've, we've dealt with slavery, but we actually, but what have we done? I, I don't know if you have more thoughts on this report in particular and how it's played out. I mean, there is no dealt with slavery. There is no period on that sentence. It's, a, it's an ongoing continuation that it must occur. But you said they dropped it from the required reading, for example. They, they did drop it from the required reading. Um, they picked up some other books, which is useful. But even if you only have the students read that one section of the report that's on the history, um, that would be really important for them to, uh, to understand how their school has affected our nation, the landscape, the people here. But then for all schools to be doing that, same, that, that similar thing is incredibly necessary. Joey, your work, as as we've discussed a little, connects in industrial capitalism and class conflict in the North with the slave economy in the South. My question is, how do you make that connection salient for people, especially given the tendency in the U.S. to sort of separate class and racial justice issues as as separate rather than fundamentally interconnected matters? And related to the reparations discussion we were having, how how can this kind of the sort of teaching that you're doing does it hold out any hope of talking to white people about things like 
racial justice in a way that they, they see that they have a positive stake if we think about racial justice as connected to economic justice rather than just a, a threat to their, to their whiteness and their stake in white supremacy? Yeah, so on a, on a basic level, as people have been saying, connecting these economies, the North and the South, is just fact. Like, it's just, if you're trying to do history and talk about history in a serious way, that is the history. Like, this was one intertwined um, economic system, and to speak of it otherwise is, can only be, you know, politically motivated and intentional, um, but that is how it is usually discussed, right? The what sort of most conservative mainstream narrative you usually hear at these museums is about just uh, these mill owners kind of had these great ideas to make these machines and they made them and that caused the industrial revolution and then we got more products faster and this was like net good and represents progress. Um, then from both a conservative and part, you know, left angle, you'll get a, like white working class almost critique of that where from the right it's this imagination that you know like white people sort of like built everything in the country like in this time period and subsequently and so you know have a you know right to like inherit um, everything in this country um, but then even from the left the labor history often totally cuts out this story and you, you see this regularly um, in Rhode Island's the door rebellion is a great example anytime there's an exhibit about the Door Rebellion, it almost never discusses um, the role of people of color. It never discusses how no, that's the, like the central tragedy of the entire thing. Yeah, it is, and you know, it you know paints this heroic white working class and totally cuts out the part where they completely sold out, um, you know, people of color who were you know actively petitioning the Dorites to include on multiple occasions, right? These, these, these white radicals had a lot of chances to repair this um, mistake, you know, maybe mistake is the wrong word, but this decision they were making to, you know, sell people out. And it's, it's, it's simply not discussed in favor of this, you know, again, heroic white working class story. And you, that labor history transfers directly into, you know, certain strains of unionism in the country today, you know, a white, Unionism that favors this kind of like nationalistic story about protecting competition for away from white workers in the United States and sort of remembers only them, only, you know, white men as constituting the working class in America. And this has deep, deep historical roots. So, and that kind of unionism is, of course, in a, besides being immoral and incorrect in so many ways, is uh, ineffective, right? We're never going to win anything. Um, for any working people with that narrow an understanding of our history and of our current economic context. So, and so how do you make the case to white people that they have more to gain in solidar with, through solidarity with black people than they do with solidarity with whiteness? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a big question. But if we're looking historically, I mean, that Dole Rebellion is, is one key example, right? This white working class completely destroyed their movement because of white supremacy, you know, other examples abound, you know, the Pawtucket strike in 1824, um, to the small degree that it's talked about anywhere, because it's also uh, young white women workers leading the strike, um, who are also often cut out in favor of this kind of macho labor history. Whenever it's talked about, they cut out the part where a few months after that, the white working class also in Pawtucket and Providence led these 
horrifically violent hardscrabble riots where they, uh, it's race riots where they're destroying black-owned businesses, black-owned homes in this part of Providence. And connecting those stories and sort of the failure to build a movement that was seriously challenging the capitalist class in this time period, I think points to, to, to the failure, right? If they're going to, to, to divide themselves into this narrow sector of society, whether back then or today, is doomed to failure. If you're talking about any movement for liberation or freedom, you need to be um, addressing all sides of the economics. Um, and again, you see that historically and today. Um. So last year, the Center for Reconciliation hosted a book club on Ibram X. Kendi's um, book on uh, race, and now I'm immediately forgetting the name of it, Stamped from the Beginning, <laughs> um, which addresses the long history of racist ideas in America. And so his argument is that for um, white folks, especially white working, working class or poor folks, it's really about exploring this idea of intelligent self-interest, that it's actually in their best interest to align themselves with people of color and um, other working class folks, because it's really, in our nation's history, we have specifically been, been targeting people of color and women for all kinds of exclusion and harassment and oppression and in all of these various oppressed groups coming together, they actually are able to recognize who actually has caused the real problems in this country. And that it has, it has been consistently a very small group of elite, white, wealthy men who have created this societal structure that we live in and are still challenged by today. So through intelligent self-interest, you can actually align all of these groups together to say that actually when you blame poverty and you blame drug abuse on black people or on Latinos, that you actually erase the white experience of drug use or poverty. And so by making this a black problem, white America will say, we don't need to deal with that thing. It has nothing to do with us. Mass incarceration is a case in point, which of course incarcerates extraordinary numbers of black people, but also incarcerates very high numbers of white and all yes. sorts of people. And it gets away with that because racism is, a good, is, a, is the best-selling brand. Yes. You can blame people of color for all of these things when actually white people are also seriously, significantly impacted by these various problems. Or welfare reform. Welfare exactly. reform was the destruction of welfare, as we know it, was passed because of the racist demonization of black mothers. But as a result of that racist campaign, a lot of white, Latino, other women also lost access to welfare because of racism. Or the ways in which um, uh, certain drugs like weed have been made illegal in this country um, because of connections to people of color, especially Latinos and blacks. And so now all of a sudden we have this legalization movement that actually doesn't, that makes it very difficult for the people who have had a lot of, um, spend a lot of time getting experience growing and selling these products, now suddenly can't get back into the market now that these things are starting to become legal. My last question for everyone is sort of along these lines, which is there are multiple venues for teaching the history of slavery in a way that rethinks the conventional wisdom. Classrooms, museums, historical sites, there's also political conflict in the world at large outside of these 
institutions, around racial justice issues, around class struggle issues. So my question is, what role do you see political conflict outside of academia and museums and historical sites playing, whether Black Lives Matter, fast food workers struggling for a more decent wage, Trump's presidency, the fight over immigration, the debate over reparations, everything. How do those real world, quote unquote, political struggles impact and shape the work that you're doing inside of more explicitly, formally educational institutions? When I teach about slavery, for example, um, and people are like, oh, that's an awful historical system, I say, but wait a minute. Have you checked the label on your shirt? What did you eat today? What kind of car are you driving? There are more slaves now than, than there have ever been. So we are participating and benefiting from systems of slavery. The same cell phone I use to film a Black Lives Matter protest has components in it, right, that were gotten, that were obtained by slaves in the Congo. Cobalt. Yeah, and, and, and gold and, and other elements. So how do we reconcile those things? And I think the most important thing is knowing them, right, confronting them, and thinking about how our daily actions can stop being so complicit in that system and challenge it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it moves both ways. Both the history we're doing is hopefully can, you know, influence and uh, help these movements and vice versa, because all of these educational institutions are also fundamentally, you know, political institutions, the politics inside of all of these institutions that requires organizing within to change the, you know, politics and to change what is taught. So just within Rhode Island, there's just many, many historical institutions, and each one has a board of directors, and each one has a president. These people are often older predominantly white, predominantly wealthy people who have an interest Exploiters. in pushing, yeah, a pushing <laughs> a specific historical agenda. And I'm sure, you know, everyone who's done anything public history has run into this um, situation to change this is not just a matter of, you know, like there's obviously a role for academia, but it's not like, you know, people do academic studies and then it immediately trickles down into public history, right? It requires organizing and political action um, on a broad level to get those changes to happen. And so just recently, you know, coming out of a lot of these uh, social movements, for example, the, the attacks and destruction of like uh, Confederate monuments, that was some of the most people had been talking directly about U.S. history was in, in a long time was coming out of social movements that were then ad directly addressing our history. And that had an impact here. I remember I was giving um, a tour at the John Brown House and criticizing the Linden Place Museum in Bristol, Rhode Island, which is the mansion owned by the DeWolf family, right? One of the largest slave trading families in American history. And they, on their usual tours, they're talk, speak very little about how this mansion was built by the slave trade, right? They talk about like the pretty chandeliers and that's all. Um, and this, uh, a board member came up to me and was discussing this and was sort of defending the museum and sort of like attacking me for making this criticism was like, you know, once all those Confederate monuments were being destroyed, people were emailing us saying, you know, we should get rid of our museum too. Like, can you believe this is happening? Like, how can you be making these critiques? Um, and it just shows, like, the, the interaction between, you know, larger political uh, 
uh, action and what gets taught in these museums. So again, working both ways between what hopefully we're teaching has some impact on uh, inspiring, giving fuel to you know, movements for liberation um, also has to work the other way. Like we're gonna change these institutions. It's not just uh, finding information in archives. It requires like real political organizing. So in the kind of in the same vein that um, that we were talking about earlier, that traditionally taught American history is actually Eurocentric, elite white male history. In our museums, we often believe um, or are taught to believe or they're sort of created to appear as though our museums are these neutral spaces when they are hashtag museums are not neutral. So um, it's, it's important for our museums to keep up with what's going on in the world constantly keeping up with this information, which can be very scary for museums um, and actually very scary for a lot of teachers. They're like, I have my curriculum. I've been teaching it this way the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 80 years, whatever it is, however old they are. And so it's very hard for people to change. It's very hard. I, I understand that. But it's necessary. And for me, at least, and for the organizations that I work and consult for, it's a lot of fun. So as an example, at the Robbins House, which is an African-American historic site in Concord, Massachusetts, I get to dress up like a woman who was born in 1833 and lived through the Civil War and did a lot of educational, was a, was a teacher, and did a lot of actually um, racial justice activist work. And this is long before we even think about racial justice in the way we think about it now. And she was also a proto-feminist in a lot of ways. And so I get to appear in my 1860s dress and only speak as though I only know things that happened up until about 1865, 1870. But I can use her life experience to talk about Black Lives Matter, which is the long civil rights movement and the activists and these activist histories. Um, I can talk about feminist organizing and activism work. Um, I can talk about protests, I can talk about civil rights, I can talk about the Constitution, I can talk about various presidents um, who, have, who ha we have popularly elected and various presidents who have found ways to get themselves elected in other ways um, or have been gotten elected by individuals at a very specific agenda. So I can talk about everything going on right now, today but I can do it without even knowing any of that happened because all of these histories are so deeply connected to one another. And I get a lot of um, tour guides and museum professionals coming to our workshops asking, well, how do I talk about current events without poking someone's sensitivities about their, their different political leanings? And I say, well, just take it back 100 years. Take it back 200 years. People aren't, are a little less sensitive about that and explain what's going on right now through the context of something, almost the exact same thing that happened 200 years ago. And suddenly people, they sort of lose that emotional sensitivity that they might have on a modern event. And they can start thinking it through and saying, oh yeah, that thing's not fair. And then you can say, okay, well in the same way that we were separating families from children during the international slave trade, and how that's not fair. Are there any ways in your time period where you might be 
forcing children away from their parents that could be causing some same problems. And people start saying, hint, hint. oh yeah, oh yeah. Marco? We're all sitting here right now as we are. And if Brown University police came through the door right there, start looking around. How many people in here would get up and head for the nearest exit and run? <laughs> Couple folk get concerned. But most of us aren't gonna move. Because why? In our mind, we know that they're not really looking for us. They, they're after somebody else and they think they might be in here and then so we, you know, we look around and then if they see somebody, say, oh, okay, there he is, let's go. They're coming with us. And all of a sudden everybody breathes easy. Oh, okay. What just happened there? The police is an institution erected, again, by white civil society, started out as a slave patrol, and the idea was to guard private property, in this case, private property that had legs and can get up and move. That's a kind of an institution, and that institution travels. So using just this one example, if we say, how do we make this kind of change? You can't reform that. You can't reform your way out of a chattel slave system. Part of what I argue is that the nation has to have a civil war. What am I getting at? And I'm going to say the, the, the mistake that we make, but I don't think it's a conscious mistake. We keep making the repeated mistake that we can change these fundamental, rooted, deep-seated, so that Elon got to take somebody back 200 years to get them to grab something. And sometimes the folks she's taking back 200 years wasn't even here 200 years ago. Their families immigrated in way after that. And she got to get them to try to understand something. We keep imagining that we can change these institutional structures that are literally the essential genetic building blocks of this society without a robust and uninhibited radical process. Some stuff has got to be dismantled. How do you do that? I don't know. That's the American experiment in democracy. We got to figure it out. But I can tell you one thing. Brown University in a couple of weeks is getting ready to have, I think, their 251st commencement. They figured out how to make something last for 250 one years on some land. Listen, I'm, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. What I'm simply saying is that we can't look at hard problems and try to figure out simple solutions. We got to have dialogue. We got to have conversation. It might involve a little bit of hugging. It might involve some hard work. It might involve some redistribution. It might a radical re-envisioning. Listen, this should not be bizarre to us. We had an American revolution. Bernie Sanders running around, he said, we're gonna have, we need a political revolution. He's right about that. Whether you vote for him or not, that's true. We just can't be scared. We just gotta realize, like, yo, this is, we gotta. We can't keep telling lies at the Slater Mill. You think you're gonna talk about the uh, Massachusetts economy, New England economy, and not talk about the whaling industry? Fuel that thing? That's ecological, ecological devastation. Almost decimated. I, I'm gonna shut up. I'm done. I'm just. My point is, we this stuff. We talking centuries old problems 
And we need to have some radical, robust conversations about like shifting and changing institutions. And that, that means more than just people's privileges having to change. We just got to do something different and we, we can take the little steps to get there. But if we're thinking about a future, as Elon and I might say an Afro future, we can't continue with the same old kind of thinking. We got to think some radical new envisioning of stuff. And we have, we've done that before, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's just that it looked ugly 200 years ago, 150 years ago. We got the, the preeminent scholar sitting in the room right here. I got a book right here, Dark Work, Dr. Clark Pajara. She, she wrote the book on how ugly it looked. Why are we afraid of this? But it doesn't have to look that way now. It don't have to look that it looked. And I think maybe this is part of Elon's point. It doesn't have to look the way it looked 200 years ago. Because we've gotten better at figuring out how to do stuff without so much bloodshed, right? You remember what Malcolm X said? He said, anytime you south of the Canadian border, you in the south. So, it, you know, we, first thing, we got to remove all this north-south thing. We talking about America. We got to have an intellectually honest conversation about some hard things. That's what I think. Well, Marco McWilliams, Joey DeFrancesco, Elon Cook Lee, and Akia Bernard, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Akia Bernard is the curator of social history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. Elon Cook-Lee is the program director and curator for the Center for Reconciliation. Joey Laneve de Francesco is a public historian and musician. And Marco McWilliams is a Black Studies scholar, educator, and activist. Special thanks to Joey, my partner in crime from the beginning to make this symposium happen, and to Julia Rock the indispensable organizer of all things logistical, and also to Seth Rockman, who offered critical advice and assistance. I would also like to thank the symposium's supporters and sponsors, Demand Progress, Old Slater Mill Historic Landmark, the Center for Reconciliation, the Blackstone Valley Tourism Council, the Blackstone Valley Visitor Center, Brown University's History Department, Africana Studies Department, the Taubman Center for American Politics and Policy, the Center for Study of Slavery and Justice, the Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion, the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America, and the Swearer Center. And last, but certainly far from least, the Rhode Island Council of Humanities. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that direct slavery is just as much the pivot of bourgeois industry as machinery, credits, etc. Without slavery, you have no cotton. Without cotton, you have no modern industry. Modern nations have been able only to disguise slavery in their own countries, but they have imposed it without disguise upon the new world while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways. Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually once, sometimes twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. 
Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Fia Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. Also, please take a moment to leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Mm-hmm.